0: Out of the 94 Best Picture winners, only one will be crowned the bestest of the best. You're listening to The Quest for the Bestest from Backlog Banter. Your hosts are Timo Nelson, Tucker Hazel, Tanner Dykstra, and Abram Buner. You can find more of our content on YouTube and Twitter at Backlog Banter. The episode gets started in just a second. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Quest for the Bestes. It's the podcast where the Backlog Boys, that's us if you didn't know, look at every single Best Picture winner in random order and attempt to figure out which one of them, the single one that we like the most, we try to figure out which one that is, as well as rank all the remaining Best Pictures. And this week, we are talking about a Best Picture winner from 1956 it would happen to be Around the World in 80 Days, directed by Michael Anderson. And, you know, I think we have a lot to say about this film. This film, I don't know if this film has a lot to say itself, but I have many <laughs> points to bring up to talk about it. And I can't wait to hear what you guys have to say. We really haven't discussed it much back and forth between each other. This this should be a good, fun episode. I'm just going to lay it out there. But before we get into any any hooligans, any tomfoolery, Let's do a little bit of housekeeping because last week, even though it was a little confusing while we recorded, uh, On the Waterfront, which we talked about, 1954, just two years prior to this film that we're talking about, got an average score of 8.4 and ended up at 28th place on our list. So we liked it quite a bit. We had a little a couple of points here and there to discuss about it with you know Marlon Brando and Elliot Kazan. Um, And I highly recommend going and checking out that review. Now, Abram, I do believe you have scoured the depths of our comment section and picked one that you would like to read to us.
1: Yeah, see, here's the situation, Tima. We need to do almost like a disappointed parent thing here at the top of this segment because there were no comments on on the waterfront which is simply unacceptable every every day i get out of bed thinking man today i'm going to see that john tor comment and i'm going to see that dan's comment and i'm going to see that nameless anonymous comment no so here's the thing the old guard is falling now is your opportunity to rise nameless quest viewer i'm not talking about nameless anonymous i'm talking about totally nameless <laughs> yet quest unknown come rise to prominence right now because here's the problem Instead of reading a a quest comment from the base show, Quest for the Bestest, I'm here talking about base, low art cinema here. This is a comment from our review of Top Gun Maverick, which, by the record, I think is better than almost every film we've watched for Quest for the Bestest, in which Andrew Orozco, of My Star Wars Show and Back Cod Banter fame, writes, and I quote, Love the beach scene. It was really great seeing the whole team interact in that way. Honestly, loved it more than the OG volleyball scene. Now, the reason I read this, completely outdated comment, but we have been posting a lot of movie reviews over on the YouTube channel. So if you're on Spotify, head over to YouTube because stuff that we do there doesn't always make it to, to audio feeds. So come watch us review all kinds of great films like Maverick or all kinds of nonsense like Bob's <laughs> Burgers. And come watch my
2: Star Wars mm. show also. So it's mm. good you've stuff. no doubt heard of our, our internet famous, the internet hit, uh, the BLB RRR review. But if Absolutely. you haven't, if you've been living under a rock and haven't seen that video... Uh give that a walk too it's It's pretty popular, as I understand.
3: Have you've been living in anywhere but India <laughs>
2: <laughs> anyway,
0: and oh, and boy, howdy does this film uh, around the world in eighty days? Take a trip to India that perhaps yeah. the, the Indians would not so be sure. so happy with. I want to hear what you guys <laughs> sure have to say not. about this film. um can we do a little challenge? Can you given the film is is about three hours long? Mm-hmm. sum up your thoughts about it in the least amount of time possible ready
2: go uh okay okay go talking ahead to like how
0: many words or like no just just brief length duration yeah. if
1: okay how about this if not for the incredible scale of the film this would be the worst movie we've watched request
3: for, for the Best. oh is that the hot take you proclaimed a little mm-hmm. bit before we start recording
2: yeah, uh, yes. I,
3: I find it Gosh. hard to disagree with that. It's certainly not the one I've disliked the most. But uh, I came into this film with high hopes. I'm like, hey, you know, I've been enjoying longer films. This seems to have a lower average on everything. But maybe I'll be the one. Maybe I'll be the staunch defender of Around the World in 80 Days. Nah, I, I, re- I really tried my hardest, man. But this this film goes nowhere while going everywhere. Uh, and I and I think that's an impressive feat in itself, but man, what a what what an addition to this list, you know? Maybe a subtraction
2: actually. <laughs>
3: that's a great <laughs> point.
2: Division <laughs> needed more Steve Coogan and Jackie Chan, is what I'll say. <laughs> uh, but no, um, yeah, I I I agree with uh, with Tucker and Abram. Tucker, I, I love your point of this film goes nowhere while going everywhere because uh, yes. that that just really is. There's no character arc in this film uh, for our main character Phileas Fogg. Uh, Phileas, it is, yeah, Phileas. By the way, um, it is jam-packed with uh, sequences that go on too long and uh, harmful racial stereotypes, all that as well. Across so just just a lot of negative points starting off with the bat here.
0: Yeah, I mean. I think Abram, you bring up the single positive point about this film in that it does have a very large scope. and it I think it I think the location, the set locations are good. But everything else, I just oh man, it's so boring. It's so there's no plot. It's so boring. Things just had. like, Nothing happens on screen. All everything happens off screen. It's so stereotypical. Like even the sections where they're stereotyping America are like outlandish (laughs) and ridiculously like, oh my god! Not to mention like just the the bigotry and the racism
3: throughout the film. These (laughs) everywhere. Good lord! (laughs) Here's the interesting thing about this film is when when we're watching it and you know it's it's going on long. It's got an intermission. I'm like I'm sitting there. I'm like I'm not enjoying this. But I can see why this would win Best Picture in the 1950s. This film goes around the world. It does feature all these other cultures and flying machines and all this stuff, which people in this time period had not like fully experienced. Like We've seen videos, we've seen documentaries of, of all these places. We know that these stereotypes are harmful, but for, I assume for the people who saw this film when it came out, this was their first exposure to, you know, the, the idea of, of all these cultures across the world or, or most of them had probably never been on an airplane before. So seeing people up in the air or cameras up in the air was probably very impressive. And it is long and it features all of these cameos, which are probably one of my favorite parts about this movie. It was, it was fun seeing famous actors that I recognize pop up. Uh, but absolutely makes sense as a for that time best picture win. But it has just lost all sense of relevance, all sense yeah. of relevance. And it has actually become harmful. As a best picture winner, if you're watching through best picture winners and you see harmful stereotypes of essentially every culture on the planet except for the English, that's that's bad. That's not England. good.
2: Yeah, yeah, Tucker, yeah. I would argue that the, that the non-character that Phileas Fogg is is a harmful stereotype of the British, uh, but no, not not actually. Uh, it, it's much more. Uh, it's much more derogatory towards people of other nations and other cultures and things like that. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so. I kind of want to I want to start at the beginning of this film because this film has an interesting like prologue to it. I've never seen something like that before that sets <laughs> up the film. What did you guys think of this whole we get to see, you know, the what is it called? Journey to the Moon, the milliers film, a trip, film? To, the moon. A trip yeah. to the moon at the beginning. Um, and then we, we have this long, like, exple- i oh, mm-hmm. Goodbye. Uh, I'll
2: have to I'll have to go trade it in for my film bro card. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, hey, well Timo, you can trade it in for your uh journalism bro card if you can if you can name me the person who does the intro to the film.
0: Uh uh mm, No, no. <laughs> I'm it the, is I... of
2: course uh famed American broadcast journalist it's like... Edward R. R. Murrow.
0: Oh, I was gonna right. name someone else.
2: Yes. So
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Extraordinarily relevant but, for today. Here's my feeling.
1: Here's my feeling on the intro. I think it's pointless. I, th- I think it is absolutely not useful at all beyond the fact that I was like, oh, it's fun to see what they're showing me, right? But the the film just has no, like, in what, can anybody tell me in what way that was at all important to what okay, so, I think
2: it, oh, we, <laughs> we all, all started. have thoughts. We all started, and go go I'm going to go. Okay. We all started, that oh, okay. I'm going to go. Um, I think that it, it tries to set up this theme of, like, the world is shrinking, which is sort of like the appeal that Tucker was talking about for people in the 1950s, uh, stupid people in the 1950s who didn't know what China was like or whatever, uh, or <laughs> India or Japan or, I don't know, the American West. No, nah, uh, But <laughs> But I think it is supposed to set up this theme of, like, Hey, the I'm Edward R. Murrow, the man you trust to bring you your news. And here's the world, and boy howdy, it was shrinking. But back in the 1870s or whatever, one man, this guy Jules Verne, he he predicted that the world would be shrinking. And boy howdy, let's take a look at that story. And then it's really boring. But I think that's what I was trying to set up was this idea of like bringing the world together and like uh, because of travel, like traveling technology, uh, we, we we can do sure. these things much more easily than the characters in the film.
0: Perhaps it was also like a tempering of expectations, kind of being like, hey, nowadays you can just fly around, but back then they couldn't just fly around. They had to do all these crazy mm-hmm. steps to go through traveling around the world. That, yeah. that was the only other additional boats point mostly. I got out of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. boats. boats mostly. Well,
3: and some trains. But <laughs> and, and also the final thing, and I think the most obvious thing, uh, taking apart are uh, discounting, not fully, but discounting the thematics that uh, that Tanner tried to talked about is that one of these is a Jules Verne story and the other one is a Jules Verne story and like I, I do think that it's <laughs> yeah. like hey look how much cinema has grown in this short period of time we can show all these crazy things that you know George Melay did the, the best he could and honestly let's be uh, real the Trip sorry, to the Moon t- better film than huh, sorry than thing. oh uh, sorry who, uh, George Malay as they say go. oh George God. Melee, yeah yeah oh yeah Melay <laughs> George Melee, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I liked seeing it because I like A Trip to the Moon. I've seen it numerous yeah. times throughout my life, and having someone sort of commentate over it, it, it was fine. But, man, what a waste of time. Entirely mm-hmm. irrelevant to the film. Tax on an extra, you know, close to 15 minutes or something like that. That can easily be cut off and saved you a little bit of pacing, but maybe maybe one of the most interesting parts of the film. That's yep. not a part of the film.
2: It did start off on an interesting note that I did not expect. And then yeah. uh when we went into the rest of the film, it's like the worst aspects of like nineteen fifties uh Hollywood slash British big blockbuster come out and see this film film.
3: Yeah. yeah. Okay. So Cameron, my... what's your response to any of this? Hmm, yes.
1: My response, I think you're probably right, but I also oh, I don't okay. care. That's kind of that's kind of my multifaceted approach because ultimately I think that that Tanner I I, I like what you're saying and I and I get that's what they're trying to mm-hmm. communicate but this is a movie that has no interest in really like conveying a no. message of any variety it's like the maybe I mean maybe the world's getting smaller but honestly I don't I don't know if that really comes across in the movie because it seems kind of big to me and we would never really un, un, unpack things it kind of just like travels. And then oh, oh there's a problem he gets over the problem and we yeah. keep going, right? I think th- the movie has two separate issues, right? I th- there's a lot more issues than two, but I think there's two mm-hmm. main issues. First of all, is all the awful racial stereotypes in the in the white European man going around solving all the problems and all of these other other cultural mm-hmm. contexts. Didn't like that very much, I have to tell you. But the other problem is now that that's the, the movie hot take. on a plot level, <laughs> on, on a plot level. Nothing has any weight or consequence, so that's why I don't really find myself buying in at all to the idea that that little prologue is setting up something grander. Because can you can you point to me one moment in the film where you felt
3: a sense of struggle? No. There, there's, one has, the there's one issue. thing that has that's the that has consequence is when when uh, good old Phileas Fogg and his buddy Passepartout uh, save uh, the character played by uh, Shirley MacLaine, and and she joins them along oh, with the boy, rest yeah. of the, the film, um, but. It's not like that really changes too much about the film. It just is a consequence of an action that they had. But that's the bar we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. She is so emblematic
1: of everything around this movie, actually. That she might be the one point of intersection between like the movie is nothing happens with consequence in the plot and it's horribly racist, right? Because first of all, you got her you got Shirley McLean there in blackface, but not blackface, brown face, mm. apologies. Make sure we get our, our, our <laughs> yeah. ca- racial terms yeah. right here. This is a quest for the bestness. But but like she does nothing. No. She has no function in the narrative what? moving forward. We almost have she almost imparts a lesson on the fog, but then that would have that we would have had to unpack something. So suddenly, oh shoot, fog messed up the calendar. Now we can complete mm-hmm. the journey, right? When you really think about, she is there as like eye candy in the most literal sense, and has no function beyond that, other than to just like like kick around. She's like she's like an RPG party yeah, member you yeah. never talk to, <laughs> and, and it just.
0: I have
2: nothing. So, else. Yeah, uh, you, um, I have got a I whole am, quest
0: episode to fill, so I hope
2: you're yeah. not completely done.
1: <laughs> I am, bring,
2: I'm on this. Uh, you bring this, up, oh, sorry, wait, go ahead, Timo.
0: I, I have a point to bring up here, Tanner. Okay, um, sorry, sorry, go, ahead. I'm, on go this, ahead. I'm on the social media app, Be Real, and I was watching this movie when Be Real pinged me saying, hey, Take a picture, you're stupid, whatever you're doing. And I was watching this movie, and I'm like, oh, Oh. God, I have to show everyone that I'm watching this horrible movie. Um, (laughs) And so then I wrote, I I had to write a caption of the the frame Mm. that I was taking, and I titled it Orientalism, the movie, because this movie is, Mm. the racism, I think, stems from this like really exoticized and really like Orientalist look at the world, in which they don't really travel to anywhere other than either uh british territories uh, british overseas territories india uh they go to do they go to egypt or they go through the suez
2: no british there's a
3: there's a pyramid in the credits but yeah they they never went to egypt they go to
2: spain hong kong japan india china oh and and india yeah yeah and And so
0: hong kong and india are british overseas territories in in the in the film and then contextually in the film japan is like a pseudo-american like area where because america has come in and said wow we have to we have to trade with you so open up um and it's like oh man like the Even The film even points out at the beginning that there are other parts of the world that they could go to and that they are just not going to. Like, they don't Mm -hmm. even examine the fact that Africa exists. It doesn't exist in this film. And when they go to, you know, they spend the second half of the movie in America. I'm like, wow, okay, this is one of the more interesting locations. No, that's sarcastic. This is like what, you're in like an, a location that we've seen over and over again in films. It has its own genre. Of what what you're in, yeah. And so like, while the setting allows for beautiful location photography, it's like, and we get ample time to look at the locations. I think yes, that like, oh, mm, mm, you pick better locations now. Per- perhaps that's a fault at the Jules Verne story, but like, still, man,
2: Orientalism and racism abound they are endless in this film yeah i i think it is uh, emblematic of this film so you know the, the 1950s and then and then the 19 the 1870s ignorance of this of this story that uh the one locate the the best location in the film in which like is the most interesting it has interesting side characters and you know has like uh the weighty conflict is america and the film is largely disinterested with examining, like, the real honest, uh, an honest depiction of the culture of any of the other countries that it visits. But when we get to America, we're like, wow, look at all these cool characters, and wow, there's this this beautiful landscape, and these characters are getting caught up in conflict, which, of course, is, uh, it, it is a raid from a Native American tribe. Uh, but I, I think it is emblematic that um, it spends... I don't I don't know what the economy of time is, honestly, between all of these countries, but it feels like America... It's crashing. The economy of time is crashing. But I think it is probably America that we spend the most time in. Se- yeah. Maybe second to Spain. Because boy, how do you, we spend a lot of time in
3: Spain? That is the first thing that I wrote down on my notes. And I think it's emblematic of a pacing issue that I got a, a sort of live tweet thing from Abram yesterday saying, mm. like, this movie does not respect your time. And I think the moment where I feel it most is with Spain because not only is that the first location that we end up in that isn't Britain. And I, and I think that the, the first part of the movie moves at a reasonable pace before they get on the balloon and start traveling because mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's set up its context. I, I think that might be one of the more interesting parts of, of the movie, but then when we land in Spain alongside fog and passport two, we have two whole sequences that are played out in their, basically their entirety. And it's like thirty five minutes that we spend just like watching things happen in Spain, because you got to get a guy to do a thing. And it feels like the most like bland video game side questy thing that like you don't want to be spending your time in in en- in a movie, especially when there's such a condensed time period, but like i I just in- immediately felt boredom, not not only because what was happening wasn't very interesting. Um, actually, that's exactly why. but. Mm-hmm. I can see why they did this because, okay, Spanish culture—you know, flamenco dances, bullfighting—these are things that people, uh, you know, Americans and British people of the time probably hadn't seen. They are colorful, flashy, exciting, but spending this much time on them doesn't make a lot of sense, especially with that economy of time that Tam was talking about. Is so misbalanced. Like mm-hmm. I would have much more, much rather them be walking through. A forest in India for a longer period of time, looking at looking at wildlife or exploring Japanese culture in a more thorough way, but like spending like two full sections in in Spain, I think felt really really like that was a that was a bad indicator for me. Yeah, I think it's because that's probably what
2: uh, a British and American audience of the of the time were most familiar with. I mean, like Mm -hmm. Spain is part of Europe, of course, and I I I think yeah, it's it would have been better if we got to like see. A thing from every country. At, le- at least it would have felt less, maybe less orientalist uh, in that sense, uh, in the sense that Timo was using that word. But at the same time, that also has a great possibility to be to be like, um, you know, condensing a country down to like this one practice or event or whatever. Well, that's still what they do. Yeah, exactly. They still do that. But it, at least it would be visually and uh, conflict, and interesting conflict-wise. I don't know. Um, go well, ahead, Abram.
1: Yeah, well, I think it just points again to the fact that we're watching this in 2022. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and I'm not even, I don't even mean that in, in the sense that we've been talking about it and we are pointing out all of the harmful stereotypes mm-hmm. that would have passed easier back then, but from the sense of there is nothing interesting about the, the yeah. camera work anymore. But the film really hangs its hat on that. There are truthfully a lot of shots in this film that literally should have been cut away from 15, 20 seconds sooner mm-hmm. than they do. But, but the film feels, I think, a sense of. Of novelty that obviously was there. And Tucker, to your point, is probably why it won Best Picture. But I think about the, you know, there is some inventive camera work here. Like we spent, I think about the hot air balloon (laughs) segments a lot because we see that goddamn hot air balloon from every possible (laughs) angle. And then we see the ground from the hot air balloon and we watch the camera sway. And the film, I think, once you become lost in this feeling of, oh my God, look at where we put the camera. Or when we get Timo, I I said you were going to get hot and bothered for the train part, and I think you probably did because there's all these gratuitous close-up shots of wheels and on the front as we're looking down the track and it's almost fish-eyed a little bit around the frame. And, like, this stuff does not hold up anymore. But the film, in a lot of ways, to me, felt like a three-hour, like, like, reel of of, of the cinematographer's ability behind the camera. But that doesn't translate to a compelling film, and I think Span is a perfect example of that when we're watching uncut this dancer making an audition tape and then we have to see past part two get up and do another dance dance, right it's not only about not valuing your time it's about very transparently shooting sequences only because they look pretty or because they seem novel and And i think
0: about that i felt that particularly when in the bullfighting sequence uh i've been reading hemingway hemingway writes bullfights Mm -hmm. really really well oh my god these are they're so boring in this like he's like (laughs) <laughs> wow. and then like we wait and we see everything happen and the same action happens over and over again and we're in this like like wide shot of this very large set that's quite pretty but man no like oh we 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 get the closest shot we get is of the bull we never get to see passport being like a feared for his life you know the bull he doesn't know what he's doing he's got to just do this and even the consequences of that whole setup are just like, there's, there are, there's no stakes because the dude had like kind of already agreed to give his boat to, the, to fog But then he's like, oh, wait, I take the backsies. uh, You got to do this mm-hmm. bullfight thing. And like, <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. I, it, that well, was where it felt at its most gratuitous other than when I was hot and bothered, not because the trains were there, but because <laughs> they moved so slowly. The trains just like didn't go very fast. And I wanted, I was like, can, can they go quicker? That was what I wanted. Maybe they couldn't oh, in 1870.
2: <laughs> May, uh, I have some trivia that will maybe uh, illuminate some of the issues that we're having with the with the uh, sequences in Spain, as well as um, maybe some of the uh, the plot progression in the rest of the film? Uh, is that the the yeah the role of Passepartout was greatly expanded from the novel to accommodate Mexican star Cantonflas. In the mid 1950s, he was the wealthiest movie star in the world and got top billing in Latin countries. Uh, and uh, for the bullfighting sequence specifically, uh, Kenta Floss actually, uh, had bullfighting experience and he was in the ring with the bull. Uh, it was, and that was one of the first sequences to be shot of the film because they could easily swap him out if he got horribly injured. <laughs> oh, um, well, yeah. Yes. Yeah. We don't um,
0: make movies like that anymore.
2: Exactly. Um, but yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I, Abram, just your, your, your point about, um, you know, our, our, or cinematography of the the like the the camera up in the uh, hot air balloon or whatever. Uh, I compared those shots to Disney's Soarin'. Uh, for anybody who has been on that ride, oh, it's very yes. much just like yeah, fun ride. We we have progressed to the point in the in the year of our Lord, the twenty twenty two, the twenty first century. where we do not need three hours of plot around these Disney's Soarin' rides. You just need to spend like. Two hundred and fifty dollars, and then wait in line for two and a half hours to see these shots on Disney's Sorin.
1: I want to say on the bullfight okay. for a second because I think the bullfight is emblematic. Because we're talking, you said you want maybe to transition the to plot a little bit. Um, Past Part Two has maybe more plot armor than any character <laughs> I've seen in a long time, and I was I was making a point about this in in the Discord. I think it, it's it's actually a larger scale issue than I even anticipated when I wrote it. I basically said like. Problem arises, impossible to solve. Next shot, problem <laughs> solved. Yeah. Third shot, we've mm-hmm. moved on, right? And and I think that past part two ends up in these incredibly precarious situations, potentially going to be gored there, dr- drugged and kind of kidnapped mm-hmm. by some random detective, falls off the top of a train, almost gets burnt alive in an awful. Stereo uh-huh. sequence full of just really harmful depictions of a native culture, right? There's uh, 2 is in so many situations that are always solved by ah, you know what? We left the audience suspense for two seconds, it's good enough. I think <laughs> about the the, the sacrifice mm. one for a second. We arrive at the we arrive at the station, right? Or it's it's the fort. We go, oh my god, where's Passport 2? Where's past Part 2? Who's taken by the Sioux who are going to light yep. him on fire. And then Fog goes, Oh god, what are we gonna do? And then the guy goes, oh, I don't know, no, we can't rescue him. Passport 2 goes, we have to rescue him. And then he goes, okay, who wants to go rescue him? And like 30 like frontiersmen raised their hands, like, let's go they do just, it.
0: Those fronti- and then the next the, shot, well, it's I,
1: That part is yeah. accurate
0: in my mind, because the frontiersmen, all they really wanted to do was just go kill some Indians, sure. and they were given the they were handed an opportunity <laughs> on a silver British platter, sure. and they took it up <laughs>
3: gladly. Yeah, which is probably... Uh, it. It's crazy that we spend most of the movie in America, and they have a sequence in uh, in uh, uh, San Francisco, which is mm-hmm. you know reasonably length and has some some over the top Americanness of of a, an election and mm-hmm. politics and how crazy we Westerners are. Oh, aren't oh, Americans oh, extravagant,
2: Hardy har har.
3: Oh, the <laughs> yes. Yanks—they're so and crazy. Then they, they're supposed to be going to New York, and I believe that they do, and they take off from there, but we don't mm-hmm. ever see them do anything else in America other than do a Western movie for 40 minutes, in which yeah. the entire conceit of this 40 minute segment is that the indigenous Americans are in- inherently evil, barbaric creatures, and we just, everyone just got a gun and they're gonna kill them. And it's yeah. like, it's so repetitive and gratuitous that, like, it just, I think that's also on the level of not respecting your time and the combining of not respecting your time and over the top stereotypes, like the way that they showcase the indigenous Americans being just like shot by everyone and their mother is just ridiculous that mm.
0: i that part it, it, in our, in the year of our lord 2022 we it's been a re, relatively bad string of school shootings in america and we should not joke about this but they pull out all those guns they just like the, all these guns everyone are on the train has everyone,
3: a gun. Everyone, and,
0: you're mm-hmm. like, and i'm like oh yeah well that's why we have a gun problem <laughs> yeah
1: so so t- two things first i'll talk you're forgetting they're not all Barbaric. Some of them want to stop the train to smoke. Oh, the course, yeah. My bad. yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, you forgot that. <laughs>
2: that Second. scene is
0: so funny. And it's the way they way is like. Oh, they're, is, they're smoking from the peach pipe.
2: Yeah, it's lit. Li- it, it, it is just very much like a dumb American who paid twenty five cents to see this in nineteen fifty four was like, oh, that's what it used to be like, huh? So yeah. The,
1: the other, my second point there is that speaking to the, the siege of the train, that is probably one of the worst-looking action sequences I have seen in <laughs> sure. a long time. There's literally a... Past Part 2 is on top of the train. He's running across the top of the train, and so it's Uncharted mm-hmm. 2. You literally see an
2: arrow hit him yes. and bounce off oh, of it. Thank him. you, Abram. The, uh, why wouldn't you cut that I was I was ranting about this to talk about while we were watching this sequence. Why wouldn't you cut out the, the, the fucking shots when the arrows bounce off of him? Uh, well maybe that's maybe that's just Michael Anderson wanting to establish his uh, his real actual plot armor. Plot armor. <laughs> his literal plot armor.
0: It's the pants he wears. It's those like threadbare striped pants, they're
2: invincible. Yeah. Oh boy,
3: what, uh, what well, country so, are we going to tear apart next?
2: So I, I, uh, I, I want to stay in America for just a second. Okay, because okay. Uh, I actually don't... I think the second half is probably the better half of the movie. You know, this movie is split by an intermission. I actually... I, I find, like, the San Francisco thing fun of, like, the British people going there and them being like... They must have elected a new president when it's literally just, like, a political rally for an upcoming, uh like, governor's election, I think. Yeah, I think so. That's kind of fun. Um, and then, obviously, you get into the uh, everyone's shooting at Native Americans sequence. Uh, but the, but that the, it also has probably the best cameos, which I'm sure we'll get to in due time after we run through all these countries.
0: Yeah, well, we can go... I guess we can... So we did Spain. And we let's do let's talk about India now because okay. we could just we can just hit all of
2: them. How about all they? Yeah, they don't really do it much in the rest of these countries. All they do in India is uh, save uh, Shirley McLean's character from the Indian, out from Aouda. what they a, a death tribe or whatever death is how cult. they're described. Yeah, yes. something like that. Awesome, very cool.
0: <laughs> yeah, I okay. Here's something that I want to so. There is an, we're talking about a plot here. There is this overarching subplot of whether or not Fogg is the bank robber and mm-hmm. and who has taken the money and is now running off and and, and essentially spending all of it on this trip, all fifty five thousand pounds. In the end, mm-hmm. it turns out that he is not the bank robber, and the film never explains how he spent all this money. Like where did the money come from? Why yeah, did he just sp- already obscenely rich and. Mm-hmm he spends he spends more money than i think he makes off of the bet he's like if you do the math from the beginning of the film he like tells us how much is in this bag
3: Something and like, to yeah. me,
0: the this, the bag is an ingenious plot. you they're literally carrying around a bag of money, and and they never once the writers never once think to like, oh, you've lost the bag of money.
3: That's a great. Plot there's a point. couple times where it feels like that's about to happen when password two is just like going around saying like, oh man, look, we've got this giant bag or, of money. Or his and, eyes and, go and like and my master. Master. when he sees a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and there's like all these circumstances where you think that we're gonna get caught off track. A shenanigan is going to happen where Passport 2 and all his clumsy misdemeanors... It, well, that's not the word I... <laughs> that's not the word they I meant. Tucker, <laughs> when he goes
2: up and harasses that woman, I'm pretty sure that's a misdemeanor. That's a great point.
3: <laughs> I was going to say misadventures, but it, I yeah. misspoke. Maybe a Freudian slip. Uh, yeah. You, you think that he's going to lose the money. The money's going to become a problem. They're going to have to maybe slum it for a bit in one of these countries and you're going to have to see um, uh, Fog deal with being poor for a little while. But they never even reach that point of you know mild plot progression mild character development but Abram's point to the more interesting things happening off camera are are is, is very salient and I think that the biggest example of that is this arrest uh, plotline which frankly I, I'm almost more invested in the betting going on back home in Britain and all the culture around Phileas Fogg trying to get like everyone's talking about it and like he's becoming this uh, crazy legendary character all of that i find particularly like pretty interesting the the idea of this going around but then the the uh, plot line of the detective chasing him all around like okay oh this is going to ramp up to something kind of interesting there's going to be some conflict and then he gets put in jail and then we don't see a trial we don't see them find another guy they just walk into the cell and say oops and and that <laughs> is that drove me nuts because no. i was banking all the boring slowness of this movie, that at least there was going to be some sort of thing when they got back home. Fog is going to have to deal with a circumstance that challenges his character. The the people at uh, his little club are going to have to be like, oh, it, is he a criminal and like really deal with that? But the fact that they deal with it off screen, we don't even get to see like a trial or something, really feels, is the biggest example of no real plot progression yeah. ever happening here. The, and not only the, do the they deal seems with... To...
0: I, I'm, I'm just, I was very say. quickly here, Tanner, <laughs> Go ahead, very Timo. Um, the, the, yeah. All those moments of which they solve the problems, it seems to me like every single problem is solved with the bag of money. They just pull out with more money, money yes. out of the bag and pay someone off. And I'll just
3: pay someone to do something for him.
0: And yet... and Consistently. That is like the laziest and least interesting way to have any sort
2: of conflict resolution. Like, it's... Ah. <laughs> the, the movie seems to hate you if you've seen a movie before if you expect there to be conflict and resolution and and uh climaxes and things like that it's like no why would you expect that why don't you just look at these pretty shots hmm what do you what, what do you want from us hmm <laughs> yeah i i think that the last 20 movies is 20
1: minutes of this movie are terrible i think they're actually terrible and it really does hinge on that moment, tucker, when when the detective shows up and says, "Oh, sorry, we got the mm-hmm. wrong guy." To be honest with you, I was checked out <laughs> sure, long yeah. before that. And frankly, I would look up from my phone back at the movie and realize that nothing of consequence had happened in like forty five second intervals. But when that happened in particular, I was like, "You've got to be you have to be fucking kidding me because he, because it leads to not not only does the film devoid of any kind of true progression, it is so ungodly convenient yeah. the plot points are so convenient now i'll focus let's focus on the ending but then we'll talk about what i think might be the most ridiculous convenience is when is when we find two mm-hmm. in the circus been missing where are we going to find them what's use deduction deduction brings us to the circus we'll talk about it at the end of the film i agree with you tucker i think this meta narrative of betting on fog as though it's like a horse yeah. race and, and and people getting them getting you know getting telegraphs early and trying to go place bets before the information gets up to everyone so they have better odds like that is compelling however what it seems to be building towards the moment where these old guys doing these inside of trades being being debbie downers get their comeuppance mm-hmm. that's what you think the movie's building towards but the film literally ends with 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 fog walking into the room announcing its presence <laughs> um, we we have his we have his new his new almost bride walk into the room they go oh my god a woman and and then <laughs> the past part two it opens <laughs> up the window and they go this is the end of Britain and the movie cuts yeah. to credits and I thought
2: I thought they were playing a practical joke on it That's, it is I think it's it's so in, funny it's, it's so it funny. is an in, it's an insane way to to end that movie the woman <laughs> walks into the like,
3: club and the empire dissolves. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that that moment I think is the ridiculous part to me is we we play up this thing of you know, no no women. This is a very uh, which is historically British institution. correct.
0: It's historically sure, correct, of course. But like, but then and the, it, that's the, horrible, the way but... that they
3: treat it so absurdly at the end, and the painting falls off the wall. The guy drops. It's like like it's a it's a funny moment. It's probably one of the funniest moments in the film. But like, how'd you? How'd you find this place? Like, like, there's like, there's too many things that like go against this. Where I'm like, that's not a funny enough punchline to end your movie on.
2: Well, I don't think it's even a full punchline. Like, it's like the the, the joke doesn't even have time to come to fruition before the movie ends. It's the the guy like says a thing that you would expect there to be, uh, you know, a payoff to the physical comedy. But then no, it's a, it's a fade to black and it's credit time. It's a, it's a backlog based exactly. Yeah. Oh, let's talk about your thing, Abram. Yeah, talk about your thing, the circus thing. The convenience so, you're, you're going to talk about. they yeah. actually
1: yeah. Well, because here's the situation: there is an actual because it goes back to the detective mm-hmm. plotline, right? The detective has to has to get fog under British jurisdiction, yeah. and there's some kind of hold up with the warrant. I have never it has to get there. It has to be made. Yes. Sure, but like like he he's moving I, a, too does, fast. I don't really care the, the 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 point is we're going through past part two to get mm-hmm. the fall, and so the detective is befriending him. We go to get the drink. we drink what do they call it? like oh, like ridiculous. like the, like the Japan knockout or something. It's ridiculous because he takes a drink and he literally his vision goes woozy, and more cool camera tricks. It gets all funny, and he flips, and he falls over. And then in a sequence that I didn't fully understand, like people like kidnap him and put him on the right boat to separate him from Fog, and then he wakes up with literally no money, completely in a foreign country, never been to before. Cut to him like doing a stage. Yeah, performance. Well, the,
3: there's also and him wandering like, around Japan with no money, like looking at food and be like, "Man, I wish I could eat food." Great point.
1: But then, but then, but then Fog goes, "Oh shh." Shoot, we lost passport. <laughs> yeah. Darn it, we yeah. gotta find him. Okay, we gotta look across all of Japan for him. Or no, we're in Yokohama. We gotta look across all of Yokohama for him. Now where would he be? I don't know, but I do know how to use this new method of, of discovery called deduction. And then without explaining to us how his deduction works, we walk past the circus and he goes, <laughs> He's in there. And then we walk in and there he is. And the whole literally again in a comical moment, the entire stage folds in yeah. on itself. And then they leave, and there's never a conversation about how they get kidnapped.
3: Ever. No.
2: Um, let's see. Oh, uh, I, I realized that we neglected to talk about Hong Kong and Yokohama. Uh, that's because nothing happens there. Uh, the only note that I have from that, uh, the only two notes I have from that, that, that part of the film are, uh, they take the SS Rangoon. Very cool. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, and Ostrich Rickshaw. Which is just Austrian thing. Austric that was riding. one of the coolest
3: things in the movie. I'm like, yeah. I would love to ride a little thing pulled around by an Oshers. <clears> That's <throat> awesome. Yeah. Yes.
1: What, what about like the what about like the wind power, the thing they ride through? Like, oh, oh, dude, yeah. the, the sail train.
0: train the yeah, sail from... train was awesome. I loved. The I did sail like that. train. That's another that thing. Was the, in the most America ingenious part that I liked. thing that they thought of the entire movie. That was like the least <laughs> convenient and most brain. The most thought was put into writing that out of every other mm. solution to anything in the film.
2: And then they it, pass the train. And they're like, ah-ha. they like, suckers.
0: <laughs> okay, yeah. quickly, think- quickly about the trains.
2: I just, I mean, oh, I guess boy. I already said it.
0: I already said it. The trains just move so slowly. They're like, you're right. It is judicious. We see all these shots of them like moving along. But like, if I wanted to see, if I were going to try to do that, and keeping in mind, in the in the 50s i would think it would be more impressive if they went fast because then you'd have that illusion of like speed and sure. you're, like, you're going somewhere and the whole film is trying to build up this idea of oh you know fog is moving very quickly he's going to do it in less than 80 days and man it's, those train sequences are, are just kind of boring well the whole film yeah. is but the train sequences especially they stand out to me because i would i it's not going to take a lot for me to be interested in a train sequence i'm going to kind of by default but i I was disinterested when i was shown how you know you slowly everything was be was moving and the train is like crawling along the tracks and like all even all the bits with the train where it's like when they reach the end of the track in the indian jungle and the dudes are like are you what do you mean you thought you were going to go all the way didn't you read the sign in the station that we are never shown um that, that like oh okay. we were, we're like it doesn't actually go go all the way and ha, ha i guess you just gotta figure out your own method of transport um
1: cut to yeah. elephant cut to
0: paying for elephant cut mm-hmm. to buying an elephant Wait,
1: no, no no before that Cut to a discussion about oh man, it's going to be impossible to get that elephant (laughs) on top of the elephant.
3: (laughs) I think that is the the convenience and a lot of the weird progression of this film come from the actual travel sequences. They're always got they're always looking for someone to give them a thing so they can so they can continue their journey because oh man, it's just impossible for us to get out of here right now, and we can't get our tickets and and oh boy, this is going to be so difficult and and the fact that we. Hardly ever see that progression, I think, is what makes the travel sequences so boring and frustrating. And I think the the, uh, instances where we do end up seeing them are some of the best parts of the movie, like when they're flying in the balloon. That balloon sequence, probably one of the most inventive and impressive and iconic aspects of this film. I -hmm. think that them riding the train in America, while, of course, it has its problems with the indigenous Americans, also one of the more... Exciting parts of the film from from a pacing perspective, mm-hmm. and of course, it's also it's a it's a whole riff on the general. And you got Buster Keaton as the conductor, and that is just fun, isn't it? Yes. Uh, and also, I think that the sequence where they have to get back to Britain and they have to burn everything on the ship, kind of fun. Kind of fun, fun that fun. he just like, no. I will buy the ship because I have an inordinate amount of money, and you will burn everything. And then you know what? Here's the boat back. Fix it because I don't got time for that. I I, I kind of found that to be entertaining. But it's when it's when he. Pays for a boat, pays for an elephant, pays for another boat, pays for another boat. Because God, they ride a lot of boats in this movie. That's yeah. when I lose the most interest in the film.
2: Yeah, um, I, I do have uh, I have a bit of trivia, and then I'm going to roll into wins and noms. And I want to do a, uh, I want to spend a bit more time on wins and noms because I want to hear you guys' reaction to each uh, subsequent win and nomination for this film. before I get okay. into that, Oh, can I, Please,
1: I just think it's going to be a non. If it's going to be a non-sequitur, if okay, go ahead right here. I, also, I just wanted to quickly mention, talking about the train, talking about these interesting sequences, when they blew up the bridge over the River Kwai, I was also yes. quite entertained. In the American when, West. When the camera cuts, like, ultra-wide, and we...
0: Yes. He just made a joke. And then it's like... Mm-hmm. Keep up. <laughs> the
1: entire... Like, we, we watch the entire bridge fall apart, and we see the train, again, talking about no consequences. Start to roll back over it, and the whole time Fog is just re, like, doing his crossword mm-hmm. puzzle. And then we... Then we we throw all of the coal into the train to make it go as fast as possible to not fall to their death. And he goes, mm, now we're moving out of that. Yes. <laughs> and
0: that's no, right. <clears throat> just the British expecting more than is humanly possible out of every possible
2: situation. <laughs> uh, so this movie set quite a that's few a records in terms of its uh, production. It used 146 sets built at, at, uh, at six Hollywood studios, as well as sets in England, Hong Kong and Japan. It set uh, uh, the casting crew flew over four million miles around all of these sets. Uh, that casting the casting included s- over sixty eight thousand extras in thirteen countries, and over seventy four thousand costumes were designed, uh, wow. made or, or rented for the film. Uh, sure. The uh, one thousand two hundred forty three extras listed on the IMDb page uh, were <laughs> the only extras who worked on were only extras who worked on the film in Hollywood. 90 animal, handle, animal handlers managed over 8,000 animals. Uh, the breakdown there is 3,800 sheep, 2,400 buffalo, 950 donkeys, 800 horses, 512 monkeys, 17 bulls, 15 elephants, 6 skunks, and 4 ostriches. Nice. Yes. Wow. Okay. And, and now for the wins and nons. And I, I want to hear you guys' as a reaction to, to each of these. So naturally, this film won Best Picture. Uh, that's why we're talking about it here today for your pleasure. The reaction
3: is the episode.
2: Yes, the reaction is the episode.
3: Uh go back and listen to the episode if you want to know our
2: thoughts. <laughs> uh this film won best adapted screenplay. <laughs> uh, this, <laughs> yeah. This film also won best cinematography. So I but think, I, 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 yeah, I think but, we pointed out some reasons for why that could be, yeah. Yeah. Uh film won best editing.
3: It does a lot of it. It does a lot of it. That's what the Academy likes. <laughs> I mean, um, it's not like the editing is used super poorly, like within sequences. I think the problem is the editing between sequences. Yeah, or I'd say a it's lack a, of editing.
2: Yeah, it, it's a dual uh, screenplay and editing uh, issue there that we've talked about quite a bit. Uh, sure, it also yeah. won um, Best Musical Score. Score's good. Um, yeah, the score's good. No, the score is not. The score oh. is... Oh, the score I see. Is. I should have considered that. <laughs> um, it, it is...
0: I, I I sort of like when it like pulls in recognizable motifs from other things, but man, does the score just tell you how to feel? it's just yeah. like oh, right now you're supposed to be feeling patriotic because we we've just boarded the USS General Grant, and point. yeah, and you know there's the the Indian theme, the, the Native American theme, and they're like and it's like super evil sounding, and like and and yeah. oh, we're in Japan, and now we have like the most stereotypical music you could ever possibly conceive That's of also for a this great point, yeah, for this you know culture and like it probably was not even written or conceived or thought of or played by anyone who would have you know, been brought up in the culture and would actually know what the music is supposed to sound like. And over and over and over again, I just felt myself be just kind of being like grossed out by the score. Yeah. I,
3: I think that's an know. interesting point. I, I, I think that it's when those, those motifs hit that mm-hmm. I'm like, you, this is lazy. I I what, what are you doing here? But I think the moments where I, maybe it's a original score, it's hard to tell, but, I I like the score when we're handing over Britain, when they're taking off in the air balloon. There are moments where I feel the score is impressive and bombastic and I enjoyed those moments. But I think on a balanced scale, yes. This is not a, it's not a well utilized score because it does increase the stereotypicalness. When when, you know, they're about to arrive in Japan and they play a little stereotypically mm. Japanese ditty, I'm like, wonder where <laughs> we're headed next. Mm. Huh? And and well, yeah. I'm, Timo, I point. hope.
2: I hope you were wearing uh headphones when you were viewing this film. Otherwise, uh all your neighbors would have had to stop and salute with the number of dimes they play Hail Britannia in this <laughs> film. <laughs> I was not. I was
0: bla- I was blasting it loud and proud uh, off of the Good. laptop speaker. And
1: Everyone it around f- him was
2: yeah, they were all saluting. Uh, or, or uh, British it, people salute, I guess. Uh, uh, just just run through the nominees here. Michael Anderson was nominated for best director. Uh, it was also nominated fair. for best uh, art direction and set direction and costume okay. design. Also, yeah, th- th- those
0: yeah. all make Both a those... lot more sense than the ones that it won. Actually, yes. yeah, um, impre-
3: impressively directed film. What a yeah. feat! What a yeah. feat to do this. Insane that it was conceived and and uh, came out. You know, as good as it was in the '50s with the technology they had. I, I Michael Anderson, I believe, uh, very early on in his career, that he, mm-hmm. he pulled this off. Uh, so, and also, we haven't been talking about it, but this film is well made. The sets are insanely uh, complex and mm-hmm. huge scale, and tons of extras, amazing costumes. Like from a from a production value perspective, this is this is absolutely up there with with things like Ben Hur and Titanic. But I think it feels a little bit less impressive to us because it is just like, hey. You're looking at Indian culture. I'm like, yeah, I, I've I've seen better representations of these things. I've I've seen a bullfight before, but yeah. obviously for the time... I've seen the
2: film Red Notice. I've seen a better bullfight. <laughs> I have seen the film Red Notice. That's a true um, fact about me. Uh, let's be sure, Trivia, before I think we should address, you know, the cameo stuff in this uh, quickly before we wrap up. Yeah. Um, uh, my, Michael Todd is the producer for this film uh, and he, he, as Tucker and I watched the little intro to this by the by a guy from Turner Classic movies, uh, we learned that Michael Todd was maybe not the most uh, well-renowned producer uh, in, in Hollywood at the time. In fact, he was not a well-renowned producer. He had to scrape together a lot of money to make this film because uh, a he wasn't established enough to get it made on his own and B it was thought that this book was you know unadaptable into a, into a, a film uh, version.
3: Um, it's the doing of its day, yes. But the trivia I
2: have is, is maybe an, in interesting in how this film uh, built up, it built up some some credit uh, amongst the people uh, because Mike Todd implored theater owners and to uh, promote this film differently than they had uh, other big epic films of the time. Hmm. Uh, he, he instructed them to uh, show the film exactly as they would a Broadway show, which would mean uh, doing reserved seating, uh, distributing playbills before the film started. Uh, stocking soundtrack albums and hardcover souvenir <laughs> programs for sale in the lobby, removing clocks from the theater, and banning the sale of popcorn in concessions to prevent audiences from leaving their seats.
3: Uh, wow. Yeah. You can't you, you can't get away with that nowadays. <laughs> no, no, you cannot. This hey guys, movie is, is so long. good, no popcorn allowed. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, no clocks course, either. You cannot notice yeah. how long this film is. Take your phone. You
2: hand over your watches. <laughs> <laughs> Both of them uh, but, in your if, pockets. This film largely invented the concept of having cameo roles in, in a Hollywood film. Uh, there is a number of them. How many did you guys catch? I know Tucker was was going to catch quite a few. He probably caught the most of any of us because he's really tuned into those old Hollywood stars and things like that. Um, but I how many I, Timo, Timo uh, and
0: not many because i was i was i knew they were in there but also like with the aged hollywood stars like the ones who have gotten mm. older uh, i don't wasn't that good so i got buster keaton and maybe yep. uh who was the woman I, in san francisco that was always trying to like, marlena how, dietrich yes. okay yes i got her too i was like i was like I, I thought maybe she was Barbara Stanwyck for a little while but marlena dietrich makes more sense yes. yeah, so that was Abram, for me
3: I got it. <laughs> okay, right.
2: Not even uh, I, not even um Frank Sinatra was the was the pianist in San Francisco as well. No? no? Probably oh, he was okay, looking hi. down at
3: your phone because he he does a very clear like turns his face yeah he, the he, camera he, and He like merely like, winks
2: into the camera. Yeah. He, he, yeah, he's seconds from winking.
3: <laughs> another care another one that I think was very obvious, and, and Timo mm-hmm. maybe you picked up on this one as well, also maybe one of the most problematic ones. No oh, Peter yes. Laurie. Peter yes. Laurie plays a Japanese man who's who's on the boat, and Peter Laurie not Japanese. Fun fact, and, not uh, Japanese, <laughs> and also Peter Laurie like really what? He's German. Yeah, but you yeah. know that doesn't matter, right? Permanent natural casting? no, no. Uh, no but he matter. also is not doing like he's not really doing a stereotypical Japanese accent. He's doing his normal Peter Laurie voice, but he's just cutting out words to make it sound like he don't doesn't do English well, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's very strange. Um, but also, of course, uh. John Carradine from uh from uh Stagecoach, he's the he's the and tootin' American guy who was on the train with him. He, he was he was really fun. I did think Buster Keaton was very well utilized. It was kind of fun to see him. Mm-hmm. Very old, but playing sort of the same role uh that he did in the general, which way better movie than this. Go watch the general. <laughs> uh go watch Stagecoach. Yeah. No. Marlene Dietrich, um Frank Sinatra, as you said. Yes. Uh uh John Gilg was one of the guys at the uh one of the um british guys at the beginning uh charles coburn who i enjoyed in gentleman preferred Blondes" and the lady eve and movie like that he oh oh
2: who's fun, the but... guy who's the guy from um um some like it hot who's that guy oh 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 god uh john e brown or something oh, like that oh he's yeah, in that some, too the like guy that. from the end of something yes. like it hot yeah yes, yes the exactly rich guy, and he, the rich
1: he's guy. also good in that
0: role mm-hmm, yes mm-hmm.
1: Well, is is, perfect is the guy who is the guy with an indiscriminate number of switchblades a cameo i don't know i don't know which
2: character you're talking about
1: Oh my God! Are you telling me you don't remember the guy that keeps pulling switchblades
2: it, out of his jacket pocket and throwing? He's, the, the he's like the he, the I'm opposite like,
0: of Marlena Dietrich. Uh,
2: oh, his, his her like protective uh, boyfriend or whatever, mm-hmm. something Maybe. like that. Yeah, who's like every situation calls for a switchblade. I didn't, I didn't know
1: if he was a cameo. Uh, not that I got.
2: Not, that's such a weird yeah. character. Um, let's see. Oh, I do have some trivia related to the cameos people who people who got cut or weren't contacted and were sorely sorry that they were not contacted um gregory peck was originally cast as the uh, u.s cavalry officer the guy who was leading the charge to to go kill those darned native americans who uh kidnapped portmanteau or whatever his name is uh portmanteau (laughs) (laughs) um but mike todd felt that peck wasn't taking the role seriously enough yeah how dare you not take the role seriously in this very very serious film gregory peck how dare you frankly um john wayne was also considered for that role which is interesting like what would probably would have yeah probably would have fit uh with the whole western theme um and uh orson wells was apparently hurt that he was not contacted for a cameo in the film i don't know uh well i guess it was because um he had worked on a stage adaptation of the show or of the novel um years earlier and like wanted to be in the movie but was never contacted apparently so
0: Or or would you, who would you guys have liked Orson Welles to be in the film? Oh, uh, Passporto. (laughs) Passporto.
3: I I, I think, I think Orson Welles has the, the, uh, The agility and physique to take on the things that that uh, that can't even find here.
2: He would he probably would have made a good um, surly old British man in the Reform Club, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. like one of the ones who is like ice. While I can't believe these people are drinking ice, it'll it'll freeze your your liver or whatever. And the guy who's like <laughs> that that confounded creature is stomping around, and it's like a, a cat being <laughs> like, quiet. yeah.
3: Yeah yes those, those are the moments where i felt that the movie was off to a good start i was like yeah, oh hey I agree. it's got this really funny british humor where it's like making fun of the the u- uber rich in britain but that you know that doesn't really carry throughout the film and I, and I do think that the cameos as we're listing them are probably my favorite aspect of this film other than it's you know scope and, and production quality because as someone who is a fan of a lot of these actors it's fun to see them show up in bit roles and sort of invent the idea of a cameo like It is important to film history for that. And I I certainly can imagine this also being an aspect of why it was considered one of the best films of the year. You see Buster Keaton and Marlena Dietrich in these small roles, but you're like, that's Buster Keaton and Marlena Dietrich. Some of the most important people in in film history. And they're in small roles in this movie. This movie has to be good if they're getting these people on it. But we did hear in the uh, intro thing for the TCM guy that it was mostly just like, them lying to these actors saying hey you're gonna have a big you're gonna have a big role in this and we're gonna film this and then they just weren't they were just small roles yeah and <laughs> right yeah, so a lot of a lot of, lot of lying like i'm flooring yeah
2: <G-huh>. oh golly <sighs> yeah. i think that's all the that's all the trivia i have that's all the that's all the notes i have i suppose thoughts i have
1: yeah, I so. yeah. more yeah. thoughts
2: i have nothing else to say head no, empty I put a score. Oh, in, <laughs> <do>. Wow. Okay.
0: <laughs> um, oh, should golly. we should we give this a ranking? What do I want? Let's do this that. Film? I think. Uh, what do I want to give this film? I'm looking. I'm looking down here on the bottom of the list and, and getting some comparisons. Man. Okay. Yeah. Here's one thing. I while we while we're entering scores, um, one thought I had about this film is that it felt like it wanted to be a musical. It, it, it was like yeah. on the verge of breaking into a musical number many times, and it never did. And perhaps it might have been more entertaining if they had a little bit more song and dance in there, with more singing. Sure. I don't know. I don't know if it would have really worked, but yeah, maybe. If there's a little bit more great Zigfeld in this movie, it would
1: have been no. better. I mean,
3: yeah, great Ziegfeld is a better movie than this.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I don't think I so. Agree. Okay, let's type in our scores, guys. Come on.
0: Okay, okay. Everyone's them got there. them in. We don't have eighty let's, days. Let's reveal it. Nice one. In three, two. One, Okay, across the board, woo, a little bit spread out, actually. I'm surprised at two of you, the average score is a 2.3. Now the point breakdown, starting from the bottom because we're so low, Abram gave it a 0.5, I gave it a 1.0, <laughs> Talker gave it a 3.7, and Tanner gave it a 3.8. So 2.3, we don't have any ties to break. It is going to go below tom jones another british movie actually on the list yeah. at a place number 70 so it's there's two films that are below this on the list well yeah thoughts they they are also the two other films that i've
1: given 0.5s to because here's the situation right this is this isn't I'm not here to be charitable to these people <laughs> honestly. It's like yeah the movie is impressive in its production design it's impressive in its scope, but I don't care. I don't yeah. care at all the, the the context of this discussion was how terribly racially harmful the film is, how absolutely devoid of plot and character motivation it is, how nothing feeds naturally, how it's a complete slog. I think this movie is for the in the in the context of what Quest for the Best is, is completely irredeemable i don't personally know if it's worse than broadway melody or crash but luckily i gave both those 0.5s also so i can just have that even the third entry of my 0.5 club but i really think this movie to is me i
3: think that's
0: i think you know like i had fun when i watched crash like I, I i i i like enjoyed my time with that movie even if <laughs> it was point. just god awful and i just didn't have fun with this this was just not a fun movie to watch and i watched it because I had to watch the whole thing. But as soon as I hit those credit sequence, there's 14 minutes left on my little player. And I was like, I'm out. I'm done. I'm not watching the
3: rest of this. He said the end, I'm out. So that's why (laughs) it gets a one. I want to mention that there is a distinct possibility that if you watch those end credits, your score would raise because those are the best part of the film. Absolutely bar none. They have all these unique animations for every single one of the main cast members. They go on for like seven minutes. They're really well animated. They're really funny, really clever absolutely one of the best parts of the movie like i actually recommend just watching the credits if you want fun little animations but
0: mm. yeah. okay well I, I still have the movie so I, I could go back and watch the credits only at a later gonna... time i don't think
2: i am no, um yeah i mean i i guess uh, all all i would say is that uh w- when the scores get this low i i feel like it's all a little arbitrary I, I i don't know like this film could very well be worse than crash with how long it is and how little it respect your time but i think uh, I, I think uh, breaking it down by the minute, I think Crash might have more racial stereotypes per per second than this film does. <laughs>
3: I, I don't know there. if that's true, actually, yeah. but it, they're they're on the same level, which is never a good sign. No, yeah, which is um, not a d- good sign. You know, we're, we're 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 picking shits from a barrel here. Mm-hmm. But uh, the reason I would say this film is redeemable as a best picture is because we have uh, sort of put a an eggshell around this conversation of yeah, it makes sense that it won best picture. And when I'm reviewing it as the Best Picture, of course, we're reviewing it from our perspective. It's one of the lowest scores I've ever given. But I do think that comparing it to something like Robin Melody or Crash, which is the only films below it, those don't make sense as Best Picture winners. I think that this one does. I can understand from the lens of someone back then why they would watch You're you're watching the 2005 Oscars and you're like, man, I really hope Brokeback Mountain wins and then Crash wins. Like, this doesn't make, like, there's no logical sense behind this. and and so I I is one of the lowest ones I've seen, but I understand this as a best picture winner. And so from that lens, I I do think it deserves some credit. And I do think that at least in, when I factor in my score, I I have to factor in things like production value and and scope and and impressive impressiveness in its production. Like mm-hmm. this probably was the most impressive movie made in its five year time span. I mean I don't exactly remember which other films came out around it, but this is a very impressive movie. And through the lens of someone who watched it back then, like. I can't, I can't imagine how crazy this must have been. You
2: no. Know, it got a handful of chuckles out of me. Most of them were from uh, that, that rootin' tootin' Colonel Sanders-looking guy who just only talked <laughs> in, like, uh, Wild West mannerisms. I like that, that funny, guy. That was funny, yeah. I like that mm-hmm. guy. Well, there should we, we
0: put this movie entirely behind us, put the wind in our sails, and yes. go off to some other country, a.k.a. a different movie, a.k.a. The Spin Wheel? I agree. Let's do that. Let's go to the spin wheel. Oh, oh, happy day! I was remarking to Tucker that you that there is almost a five percent
2: chance of whatever movie you want showing yeah. up. Now. Oh, that's how low nice. we're getting. Yeah, we we are getting very, very low. We're running towards the end of our rope here. Uh so in the in, in half, half of a year. year, yeah, in twenty two yeah. weeks. <laughs> <clears> throat> throat> wheel wheel what's your deal give us a movie that makes a squeal is it on digital is it on real wheel wheel what's your deal and I wheel's to improvise deal. a little bit oh, is number four
3: so Ooh, uh what recent one yeah yeah this brings us down to the year of my birth <gasps> we don't know which year when was i born 2000, 2000 I know, maybe 2000. yeah i was i was born in the year 2000 the year of my I know birth what this movie is Talk and late and on this us. is a movie starring a bunch of, of big, fun people, uh, including Jaime Honsu, Oliver Reed, Joaquin Phoenix, Russell Crowe, directed by Ridley Scott. We'll be watching Gladiator. Gladiator. Ooh, mm. I've never seen this one. Another breezy two and a half hour film. Yeah, lovely, well, I'm sure, I'm
2: sure it'll be a bit more engaging. Uh, but 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 the but warning to all you viewers out there: stay off your phones during this film, lest ye feel the wrath of Ridley Scott, who hates us, Millenniums, <laughs> Millenniums <laughs> on the phone during his during his masterpiece films. I'm very excited to watch Gladiator. I've never seen it before. It's one of the old, the, the films of all time. It's getting a sequel in 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 some sometime in the far flung future Ridley scott has confirmed he's making a sequel to gladiator so maybe we'll be reviewing that as a best picture winner in 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 2026 or whatever and if yeah maybe we will be
0: and we'll have something to look back on yes gladiator uno i guess
2: yep will we be entertained by this film that is the question of course that's right well, you'll have to just wait till
0: next week to find that answer out, and uh, and hopefully no. This is the one with the kicking into the the kicking.
2: Nope, that's three hundred.
0: Oh 300. god. Okay,
2: I've got these all, these <laughs>
0: movies all actually look all appear the same in my mind. So uh, hopefully yeah. this one sticks out in some manner. We'll talk about it next time on the quest for the Bestest. Thank you for joining me on this very uh, humorous, I would say, episode of 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 the show around the world in eighty days. Good riddance. Thank God it's done. Let's be out of here. And uh, that's the end.